welcome back to Muppets in Space, a Farscape rewatch podcast on the incomparable. Tonight we're going to be covering season one, episode eleven, "Till the Blood Runs Clear," and episode twelve, "Rhapsody in Blue." I'm your host, Eric Scott, and joining me as always is my fellow co-host, someone I believe does not have a bounty on his head, as far as I know. Anyway, Jason Johnson. Yeah, you know, as far as I'm aware, I'm clear, but you know, just keep an eye out for those beacons, anyway. Yeah, and strange bounty hunters that can smell you from like miles away. You know, gotta watch out for those guys. I don't know what we can do about that, but that sounds not fun. Yeah, you know, bitter deodorant. I don't know, something, I don't know. But yeah. All right, and uh, as always, or at least, well, always up until the next couple episodes, our reminder we're following the Wikipedia episode order for season one, not the Amazon Prime order, as Amazon goes by air date, not production date. Uh, because this time around, Amazon flips. Rhapsody in Blue, for them it's episode 13, but in Wikipedia it's episode 12, which is why we're covering it tonight. And we'll let you know when that doesn't happen anymore. I think it's next next time, and I think we're good after that, but we'll tell you so you don't get confused. All right, so let's get into episode 11, Till the Blood Runs Clear. Crichton and Aaron are testing out some newly installed Moya components on John's Farscape 1 pod. The nearby sun that they're at is projecting solar flares, so Crichton is investigating the conditions under which the wormhole that brought him here was created. One of the flares reaches Moya, and Zan seems somewhat aroused by the light somehow. Meanwhile, Crichton does manage to create the conditions for a wormhole, and he and Aaron find themselves being pulled into one, but it's unstable. Aaron tells him to reverse thrusters, but Crichton is too mesmerized by it to do anything. Eventually, he uh, gets his wits back about him, and he pulls out just in time, but Moya loses them from her sensors. Zan wants to find them, but for some reason, Dargo and Rigel just want to leave. Another flare reaches Moya, and Zan's turned on again. And then meanwhile, or finally, Crichton does contact them, saying they just started a wormhole, which they could see that, obviously, but they have a plasma leak. They can't be brought on board Moya, because Pilot doesn't want them on board in case it compromises Moya's newly gestating child's safety. So Pilot tells him to eject. Crichton refuses and won't leave his module, and decides to land on the nearby planet and have it fixed, by a mechanic named Furlough that Rigel had spoken to earlier, even though Dargo forbids them from going down to the planet. Aaron is angry that Crichton would have flown into the wormhole had it been stable, regardless that she was there too, and whether she wanted to go or not. Down on the planet, Furlough says she should be able to fix the module by nightfall, and uh, she also offers to buy it instead, but Crichton refuses to sell it. Furlough says that the flares will stop soon and only return every 4.8 cycles, or years, for us. Aaron and Crichton go for a walk outside, when a Peacekeeper Wanted beacon nearby activates, offering a reward for the capture of the three escaped prisoners, Zan, Dargo, and Rigel. No mention of Aaron or Crichton, though. Aaron goes to take the beacon when two aliens object. Aaron tries to explain, but the female attacks her since she said she was not Crichton's female. Crichton does some quick thinking and tells him to back off, saying she's in fact one of his females. He asks who they are and what they want from the fugitives. They say they are Vercarian blood trackers. He is Rorf, and the female is his mate, Rorg. Say that five times fast. Um, <laughs> Crichton says that he is Butch and his female is Sundance, and the reward for the fugitives belongs to him. Later, the four of them are eating some sort of meal, and Rorf says the wanted beacons are on many planets, and he and Rorg believe that this planet will be the fugitives' next stop. Crichton says that they won't be taken without lots of bloodshed, and asks how good they are. He may be willing to cut them in. If they bring them in, he'll split the bounty 70-30. But Rorf insists 70-40, so Crichton retorts 80-40. Not the sharpest tools in the shed, apparently, on math. (laughs) 
Aaron asks Craig how long he thinks his ruse will work, and he says it only needs to until the module is repaired and they can get out of here. Meanwhile, Aaron is patched into a personal encoded message in the Wanted Beacon. It's a message from Crace saying that she will be captured and face trial unless she accepts his conditional amnesty. If she abandons Crichton, returns Moya, and surrenders Dargo, Zan, and Rigel, then she will be honorably retired with her commission fully restored on his oath. Meanwhile, Dargo has gotten impatient and uh, has come down to the planet, but Rorg picks up his Luxon scent. She and Rorf ambush him and stun him. Back in town, Furlow once again offers to buy Farscape 1 because she's determined that it shows signs of being close to a wormhole. Crichton still won't sell, but she says she could trade. She's just come by a secondhand prowler. Uh, that kind of trips Crichton's warning antenna, and he thinks something's up and goes outside to see Rorf and Rorg bringing Dargo in, all tied up. He accompanies them while they torture Dargo to find out where the other two fugitives are. Rorf cuts Dargo, and Crichton steps in, saying they must make the blood run clear or else Dargo will die, as Crace wants him alive. Rorf asks why Crichton is protecting him, and he says he doesn't care, but Dargo is worthless to them dead, and they're wasting time. Crichton squeezes Dargo's cut tentacle and punches him, causing the blood to run clear, but apparently also knocks out Dargo. Meanwhile, back at Furlow's, Aaron finds one of Furlow's men trying to access Farscape's one's flight recorder. He and Aaron fight, but she gets caught by a solar flare, and when she gets up, she can't see. Furlow strikes the man with some large object, killing him. Furlow says Aaron has a 60, maybe 70, eh, maybe 80 percent chance of regaining her sight. Zan, meanwhile, also has come down to the planet, and like Dargo last time, Rorke picks up her scent. Although this time, Zan notices the trackers and does something somehow to hide her scent, and that throws them off. But unfortunately, or as you can probably guess, she gets caught in another solar flare, and once again gets excited and passes out. Back in town again, uh, Dargo is awakened and broken free of his restraints. He attacks Crichton for some reason. Crichton says he's, he's confused and sees, he saves Dargo's ass today, and he's got no idea what goes on in his head. Dargo says every time he lets his guard down, Crichton disappoints him. Crichton calls him childish, to which he says Crichton is selfish. Crichton says he can be, and asks what about him. Dargo says he can be too. Crichton asks if he ever goes up to him with a weapon, and then says, you know, this won't work, they'll never be friends. Dargo says friendship is a lot to ask. So Crichton says, how about respect instead? They can be allies. And they agree and shake hands. Meanwhile, Aaron tells Furlow she knows she's not going to fix the module anytime soon. Furlow says it's because there's not usually a load of bounty hunters getting in the way of fixing things. Aaron says they can make a deal. Meanwhile, Rorf and Rorg attack Dargo and Crichton as they leave town. Uh, a gun battle ensues. And right in the middle of the gun battle, Aaron walks out with the beacon. Crichton grabs her, but she manages to turn on the beacon. And this time, the projection of Crace says the command carrier in the area has been reassigned, so the reward is being withdrawn. Apparently, that's good enough for Worf and Borg, and they call a truce and leave. Zan finally arrives, saying that the slurs have stopped, which upsets Crichton. Back at Furlow's, Aaron's sight is returning slowly. Uh, she listened to Crace's initial offer of an honorable retirement because it was nice for one moment to believe she could go back to her old life. But she tells Crichton if she had, that that would have meant dying from heat delirium, basically. She says that she has a debt with Furlow that she can't repay and asks Crichton to settle it. He tells Furlow that they can't pay her either, so she says the ability to create a wormhole could be valuable. He says he'll give her a copy of his data, but she wants exclusive rights. So he gives her the flight recorder data and says that five years from now, he'll be waiting for her at the other end of the wormhole. Uh, some trivia about this episode. Paul Butterfield and his effects team were apparently unable to reuse the wormhole footage that they did from the first episode and to recreate the look almost from scratch again. Uh, he said a lot of energy was spent on discussing what everything looked like. Things were redesigned time and time again until everything looked good and everybody was happy. Part of this episode was filmed at Stockton Sands in Newcastle, Australia, two hours north of Sydney. One of the directors said, uh, if you look out one way to the Pacific, you look back inland and there's vegetation in the far distance. 
It was like the Sahara with all those sand dunes. Moving the filming here gave the desert feel without having to take the production too far away from the Fox Studios home base. Also, Furlough was originally scripted as a male character. And finally, in the space of 20 seconds, Creighton uh, refers to Butch Cassidy in the Sundance Kid movie, Jesse James' Hole in the Wall Gang, and Star Trek's Klingon security chief, Worf, which I was desperately trying not to say every time I said Rorf. (laughs) (laughs) And Rorg, too, which is, that's a tongue twister, boy, I tell you. Well, Rorf roars, so, you know. I know, it's it's, it's not like Scooby-Doo, Rorf, 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 Rorf. (laughs) All right, so, uh, what did you think of this episode? Well, as we've kind of discussed uh, in between episodes, it's, it's it's something we have to keep in mind that we are still in the middle of season one and so there's still a lot of shifting and and finding their footing i think but overall it was a decent episode it probably wasn't my favorite but it it worked i I think what i struggle with the most and we might address it as we kind of hit certain points but i'll I'll just kind of generally say that i kind of felt like i felt like there's things going on in between that i miss if that makes any sense because there are certain points where I thought previously we'd, we'd established, you know, more of a working relationship between the characters. And then in this episode, there seemed to be a lot of strife between Dargo and Crichton. You know, as soon as they Crichton and, and Aaron weren't able to make it back to the ship quickly enough, Dargo was immediately ready to leave them, right? I mean, it just, it feels like that, that working relationship is already strained. And I didn't know if there was, it was almost like we missed a, a falling out somewhere. Hopefully that'll be resolved after this episode since they kind of seemed to have reached an agreement, but I, I kind of thought we'd done that in the past, so I'm not really sure where that transition is supposed to happen. Yeah, that, that didn't quite make sense to me either. Like he says, like you know, every time he lowers his guard, Crichton lets him down. I'm like, really? Well, didn't like last episode he and Aaron like go out of the ship to rescue you because you fell out into space? You know, doesn't that? I don't know how that like lets you down or. Or to your point, maybe, yeah, I mean, obviously we don't see every minute of the crew every, every episode. So yeah, maybe off-camera stuff happens. I don't know. But yeah, it just seemed really odd that, oh, we can't contact them. Well, let's go. It's like, well, you can't wait like five minutes. You know, you can't, you know, you can't hang around a little bit longer. You know, no one's coming after you right now. You're not, not in a hurry. Nah, let's go. Let's go. Let's get out of here. <laughs> yeah, they, they could, and it could be easily solved by having them discuss an argument, you know, at the beginning of the episode, you know, that, that he and Crichton might have had right before the the test started or something, you know I mean? There, there could have been something to, to establish why we're back to a, a contentious relationship. But again, I, 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 part of that's just from my personal preference of having a crew on the same page and dealing with external threats instead of internal strife. But I, I just kind of, I'm looking forward to that gel moment as a team. Yeah. I guess, you know, at, you know, checks off the box of like, you know, crew drama. Okay, fine. You know, but yeah, it didn't really, like add or subtract from the episode really and you know Dargo still goes down to the planet anyway to go get them so it's not like he's like i'm done with you guys you know forget it so whatever yeah, yeah and, and that's always my point I, at least my preference is i i enjoy the scenes like that the, the on-planet stuff was much more interesting to me than the the on-ship drama of well, let's just leave them you know uh, that that part just was not as interesting to me as the stuff that we happened on the planet yeah, and also I'll, I'll point out since we I name dropped Worf a couple of times or not by accident, but um, that yeah Dargo continues to be like the new Worf where he goes down the planet and gets immediately attacked and knocked out by the <laughs> by the antagonists. So. Yeah, as as the one warrior on the crew, right? You know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, at least Aaron fought back against the one guy trying to steal the the data, and you know, until she got blinded, she was doing pretty good, you know. But hey, whatever. But speaking of of Rorf and uh, Rar. 
Uh, well, <laughs> Rorg, I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I, I, I know, I'm, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm just gonna say right now, you know, you guys know what we're talking about. If we make mix up the names, hey, you know, it's it is what it is. Yeah. So, so what were your what were your thoughts of of our our bounty hunter pairing here? I mean, they were they were good antagonists, I guess. For well, I guess Aaron and Crichton, Darko, not so much. But you know, they it was you know a good kind of comic relief. You know, bounty hunter. I didn't quite get how, you know, as soon as Dargo, I guess, opened the prowler and stepped out, you know, she like knew he was there. Like, oh, I smell a Luxon, like what, five miles away in the desert? Like, how do you, like, <laughs> okay, you know, I'll, I'll hand wave that one away that, you know, their race must have some kind of super olfactory ability to, you know, sniff out, you know, but it was only, or whatever. It was only the female that could do that. So that, that was an interesting uh, mm, ability that, that was not equal between the two of them because he was totally reliant on her for the tracking. Yeah, that's a good point. I think about that. Yeah, because she smelled both Zan and Dargo. Right. Yeah, and, you know, it was kind of funny how, I don't know if they just don't get, like, bargaining and, like, 70-30 means 100%, you know, and he's like, I want 70-40 or, or, and, and, or something like, how about 80-40? Like, <laughs> that doesn't add up, but... Yeah, his, know, his hey. translation microbes were not uh, kicking at all that earth talk. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or their brains are so cons- are so focused on like their sense of smell that you know maybe they'll have much higher knowledge of you know room for math. I don't know. Who knows? It seems like they'd make it hard to make a living as a bounty hunter, but that's just me. Yeah, he's got to make sure that you know you get the same payment that they says so on the warning be- or the wanted beacons, I guess. Uh, so we're only what twelve or eleven episodes in, and looks like Crichton's had some time to analyze how he got here, wherever here is, and found a place whether by accident or on purpose, it didn't really say, that um, they were able to recreate a wormhole. Not a stable one, but at least, you know, he's making progress, right? Well, yeah, and I think that that's, if I had to pick my favorite parts of this episode, it's the, the couple of consistency, plot consistencies that they have in this, right? We, we mentioned the uh, ship and, and that kind of being uh, something they bring back because it's good to see that he hasn't totally forgotten about uh, furthering his research and trying to figure out how the wormholes work. And then later we get the... Uh, mention of the baby or i think what it was with plasma leak so those those two consistency points were probably my favorite parts at least because you feel like you're moving forward in the, in the storyline yeah so we said before you know this is now the era of kind of serialized storytelling or at least more serialized than we've had on multi-year tv series before this point so yeah it's good that they keep dropping in hey remember you know Moya's pregnant you know hey remember you know Crichton came from earth and threw a wormhole and you know he's trying to get home you know <laughs> Yeah, and and actually just made me think of another thing is that, that they also play off um, Crichton's resemblance to peacekeepers. That, that, I think that gets a callback in both episodes, if I remember right, because Dargo mentions it, and it gets mentioned in the next episode. So that was another interesting through point, too. Yeah, and I'm assuming that you know when Aaron got mad that she was thinking he might go through the wormhole anyway with her not knowing where it was going to go, I assume he wasn't going to do that. You know, He was just probably surprised that it actually worked and the wormhole showed up versus, hey, great, here's a wormhole. We have no idea where it's going to go. Let's go right through it. You know, No, I'm sure he's not that stupid. Right? <laughs> so. Well, yeah, and I, I think that, again, giving them credit for, for things that they didn't actually say, I almost kind of took it to be that, that something in the formation of the wormhole or the wormhole itself was messing with his brain a little bit too. Now, I didn't know if that was the inconsistency in the wormhole they were addressing or what, but he almost seemed to be mesmerized or... or lose focus there for a minute i didn't know if that was related or if he was just flashing back you know yeah like he's like you know maybe like you know oh wow here it is i have i can go home not you know which yeah i mean that's the whole point of you know you don't want to be here the rest of your life you know but yeah i mean the fact that you know you don't know where it's going to go you don't know if it's even stable or you can just blindly jump into it without more experiments 
or you're just like just totally in shock of like wow look a wormhole i did it you know <laughs> so, yeah now what <laughs> you know <laughs> uh, i guess one of the other cur- before we get down to the planet fun stuff i guess what happened like at least three times on the ship and on the planet with Zan, I guess the solar flares made her really, uh, whatever, orgasmic, ecstatic, really happy. I don't know, whatever you want to call it, right? So I'm kind of wondering, because I don't think they've mentioned this before, that I'm kind of now guessing that that was kind of like like photosynthesis kind of stuff. So I'm wondering if Zan's you know, race, you know, the Delvians, I wonder if they're like plant-based life forms, which would be cool. I can't think of any other plant-based life form in the other sci-fi series, I can remember. Anyway, that would be a really cool revelation if that's the case. Uh, again, as you kind of said, we didn't really get any information, and, I, and I'll say that again. That's one of my disappointments of this episode was that Zan wasn't really used well. I don't feel you know she she had these experiences that didn't seem to get explained, touched on, or matter, um, other than they kept her occupied and and out of the storyline. And even when she went down to the planet, she had another episode. So. She really only showed up, her only function in this episode was to show up at the end and say, oh, the flares are done. Yeah, time to move on because they're gone for the next 4.8 years, right? So it just seemed like a waste of her character in this episode So, without that yeah. explanation. If they'd have built on it, then it would have helped move her forward. But Yeah, and I guess she was there also so that Rigel and Dargo wouldn't just you know, have pilot, pilot leave. And you know, she's like, no, stay. Okay. You know, so that, <laughs> I guess she, could, she contributed somewhat, right? I don't know. But. But another character that did, did have some stuff to do was uh, Furlough, the, uh, I guess the main, or one of the main characters on the planet that we meet. I thought she was kind of fun. I didn't quite get why she kept wanting to buy Farscape 1. I mean, unless maybe she wanted the wormhole data, but it didn't sound like she knew that that, that was there when he first showed up. So I wasn't quite sure, you know, was there some reason she wanted, like, was that part of, I guess it wasn't part of the warning beacon, or the, the wanted beacon, because they had mentioned Crichton. So unless she likes old technology and you know farscape one's definitely nothing she's ever seen before probably i don't know yeah they, they could have played up the collector angle or something but I'll, I'll tell you what this reminded me of and i know there's a good bit of time gap between these two things but the um without giving a spoiler for the mandalorian series there's a uh character on a desert planet that is a mechanic and has to fix up some stuff at some point and it kind of was funny to me that's what i kept flashing back to even though it was again a, a newer show uh for a similar grouchy mechanic character on a desert planet yeah i guess some uh tropes or stereotypes never change right no both are both are good characters so there's always some junk dealer somewhere that wants to collect you know old and curious objects right yeah and again like you say she was a fun character she made a good uh uh, not quite an antagonist because she seemed to be on their side but also you know they still had to pay her at the end right Uh, with the month money or the data yeah, I mean, she's still ultimately, you know, a business person and has to make a living. However, one makes a living on a desert planet in the middle of nowhere. But hey, it works. Like you said, it works on Tatooine and wherever else. So, you know. Well, and evidently, you know, her agents, question mark, um, are on the lookout for pretty much any ship that lands because she claimed that prowler before anybody uh, even made it to town. So, <laughs> yeah, or, or she's a source like, of income. Yeah, or she saw them carrying Dargo away, and it's like, hey, a free ship, you know. So, well, that, I, 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 if I remember right, there was a uh, one of the I'm going to call them the Sand People, just for lack of a better uh, Tatooine term, that watched Dargo land and then reported back to town really quickly on his little speeder bike. So, hmm, okay. uh, I, that that was my read was that he was coming back to tell her about a ship he found, although they again they just kind of glossed it. 
Yeah, or being on a desert planet, you know, when you come across something, you should probably get it pretty quick, maybe until someone else scavenges it for their own use. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, I guess she doesn't say what she wants to do with the wormhole data. I don't know if she's going to try and use it herself. Is she going to try and sell it? So, sounds like Crichton inferred she was going to maybe try to use it because he says he'll be back in five years to see her at the other end of the wormhole. Yeah, which again leads to questions of, or do they just do people in this universe just jump through wormholes? They don't know where they go. You know, is that just kind of a thing? Oh, there's a wormhole. We better jump. Yeah, you know, <laughs> warp zone. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and at least this time, it seems like at least she knows what a wormhole is. Like, I think when Crichton explained to Crace or whatever before, uh, either he didn't get it or he didn't care because he was too worried about you know avenging his brother's death or whatever. But it seems like she understands the science, or understands what a wormhole is, what it could do, maybe the uh, financial benefits of one if you know you can open a trade route whatever who knows i don't know but at least she seems to get it unlike most other people we've seen so far you know another bit of small character development like we kind of mentioned earlier before was uh i guess Crichton and dargo seem to come to some new well i say new because we thought they had it before like we said before but some kind of like mutual respect arrangement now uh, which hopefully won't lead to weird things like wanting to just leave them behind and you know how you constantly disappoint me Crichton. like he does really <laughs> Yeah, hopefully this will be the okay. We're allies now because he mentions that towards the in the in the firefight. You know, we're allies. I won't leave you. So hopefully that'll be the response next time they're no longer on the ship when he wants to leave. It'll it'll keep him from just wanting to take off at the drop of a hat. Yeah, because now Crichton I guess, seems to want to. Well, he, he was helping to fight. You know, he didn't have a gun, but he was helping at least. He was going to try and draw them off or something so Dargo could shoot them. So yeah, I mean, I guess that shows now that he's. You know, an honorable warrior or whatever, you know, in Dargo's eyes, makes him more of a friend than a comrade or shipmate, you know. Uh, and I guess uh, the other little bit of character development, I guess, is uh, Aaron. How, you know, I guess John was a little concerned that she might possibly maybe consider turning over Moya and, the, and crew back to Peacekeepers. But then she kind of explained, that's not really a great deal he's offering since really Crace gets everything he wants and she gets to die honorably. Yeah, I'll, I'll pass on that one. Yeah, I think you know, of all the, I think this was a definitely a, a Crichton-centric episode, you know, between the wormhole and the uh, interacting with the bounty hunters and things. But uh, of the other characters, I think Aaron's rationale in this episode felt the most genuine to me. You know, she she was pretty true to her motives of considering the deal, even though she knew she'd have to pass on it. She at least got to pretend for a minute, right? And then uh, her reaction to being blind and just basically her whole interactions felt felt true to the character, where I think some of the others just felt plot centric yeah like like you know roger we never even really get to then he wants to leave and that's it we never see him again so and then yeah it was a nice trick by aaron i guess to get furlough to alter the beacon to change the message and i guess given how whatever i call it honorable simple gullible you know, insert your adjective whatever that rorf and rorg were <laughs> that you know they're just like Oh, okay. Bounty's done. Okay, time out. We're done. Thanks. Bye. See ya. And they <laughs> they just leave, right? Right in the middle of a firefight. They're like, nope. Okay, but you know, no. Goodbye. Well, and, and again, it kind of goes back to character consistency, right? Because if they're not getting paid, there's no sense in risking anything. So just they're out. I, I'll give them credit. They were consistent. They were fun to watch, and they were uh, had names that are hilarious to pick on. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's that's the kind of villain you want. You know, there, 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 there's no motive other than profit, and when it's not profitable anymore, they're done. Goodbye. Yeah, time to move on to the next bounty somewhere else. Maybe they'll bring them back later, and they can you know be mad because they found out that there really was still a bounty. Who knows? I doubt it. But <laughs> yeah, you wonder like if they go to the next planet and it's like yeah, the same beacon. It's like wait, didn't they just say they weren't doing that one? Wait a minute. Although maybe they won't put that together. Who knows? Yeah, maybe maybe they won't put two and two together. 
figure that out, right? So, you know. Yeah, they'll they'll start spreading different. They're 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 a disinformation campaign. You know, they'll start telling all the other planets, no, 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 it got canceled. Yeah, there you go. So there's is a silver lining. Yeah. All right. Any other comments or thoughts on this episode? No, I, I think we beat it to death. Uh, I think um, it, it was it was a it was another episode in the season that again it was probably what doesn't make it my favorites, but it definitely wasn't the worst. It was just kind of a continuation of the story. Yeah, you know, it was fun. It didn't really move the overall plot along other than, you know, Crichton can create a wormhole now, or at least in this case he could. So, you know, things are progressing ever slowly towards, you know, where things should go. So it's not anything special, but it's, you know, it was a nice little fun hour to, or 45 minutes to watch this episode. Yeah, even if he did lose the data at the end, which by the way, just a kind of a callback, uh, I did think it was funny that the, the flight data was on an actual cassette tape. Yeah, was that the same cassette tape? He's recording his uh, occasional stuff back to dj dj is that his name is his buddy well I, I i guess it depends on how many cassette tapes he actually brought with him maybe the whole uh farscape one runs off cassette tapes we just don't know yeah which seems odd but i guess that was 90s technology i guess that was what black boxes and things were using i don't know but i'm not the expert but it's just fun to see in our minds old school technology on a futuristic space show well you know something's got to separate him from the uh technology of the new sector he's in now right so why not use cassettes yeah, this keeps the thing going that everybody thinks he's some like country bumpkin, f- middle of nowhere. It's a surprise he survived in his little pod to get out into space kind of thing. So. <laughs> right. All right. You want to hit the next episode? Sure. Fire away. All right. So uh, episode 12, Rhapsody in Blue. The episode opens with Crichton in, uh, in bed with his girlfriend, Alex. Uh, it turns out this is a flashback. Uh, she says she's taking a job at Stanford in the medical research program. This upsets Crichton, and he reaches over and uh, kind of, without her seeing, slides the engagement ring that he had prepared to give her back under the bed. All of a sudden, Crichton falls out of bed. Uh, turns out that was actually just a dream, and uh, Moya just entered Starburst. Pilot says that uh, she thought that she picked up a distress call from another pregnant Leviathan and was attempting to answer it. Rigel tells everyone that he was dreaming about the last mating session he had with one of his wives, and Dargo says that he dreamt of his wife on the last night before she was murdered. Little coincidence there. Pilot informs them that there is no other Leviathan, but that they received a signal from a Delvian who apologizes, saying she just wants to meet Zan. Zan, Aaron, and Crichton go to meet the Delvian, whose name is Talene, down on the planetoid. Zan says that uh, Talene's use of deception continues to trouble her. The crew then goes inside a Delvian temple-like ship, where Talene shows them the food store, offering Crichton as Aaron... Crichton and Aaron, as much as they can take. Zan asks why she was brought here and says Talene invaded her soul last night, leaving her bitter. Crichton just caught a plant-animal thing for food and is amazed by it. He lectures Aaron for not giving any sort of response to the new and amazing things that she sees every day. Talene asks Zan to give them the powers to help themselves. They need her secret before they all go insane from the madness. Zan doesn't know how she survived the early cycles of hatred, but Talene says that she did, so she shows them how she will show Zan abilities beyond her comprehension. Uh, she makes Crichton then remember falling into the sea as a child, and Zen tells her to put his memory back the way it was. Uh, so evidently this was not an original memory that Crichton had, but one that was modified. Back on Moya, Dargo says that he's disturbed because he senses Delvian trickery, since they all had the same dream. Meanwhile, a man called Tuzok approaches Crichton, saying that he's here because of him and calls him a peacekeeper. Crichton says he's not a peacekeeper, and the man says he is himself insane. He says it's because of Crichton, and says that the one, one he travels with, Zan, is in danger. 
A Delvian kicks Aaron in the temp- out of the temple since he was driven from his world by the peacekeepers and she's carrying a weapon. Back in the temple, Zan asks Crichton to help her come to a decision. She says that last night she did dream of the last person she ever loved. She asks Crichton to keep an open mind and Talene warns that his capacity is less than even a level one, uh, but Zan says that Crichton will understand. Talene shows him Zan joining in unity with her lover Batal when uh, Zan then decided to avenge the lives that he had ruined and the world is put at risk and murders him. Crichton is angry with Zan, but she says that she needs him to understand because the others want her to do it again. Zan says that Batal was a spiritual counselor and at the time she was studying with him. His tenure was up, but he and the other conservative powers hired peacekeepers for external security instead of yielding control and changed Delvia forever. The peacekeepers sent many Delvians to asteroid camps, including Zan's father. Talene and the others want Zan to give them control again. As Delvians train for purity, they become vulnerable to the dark impulses, which, if they surface and they succumb to them, are like an infection. This happened to Tuzok, and madness threatens his followers. She can help them through unity, the sacred surrender of two minds, together, two spirits, two souls. Talene does not want Aaron and Dargo to come down to the planet to distract Zan from her task, and she tells Hasco and Lorona, other Delvians, to attack their minds, uh, and also Crichton. Crichton sees Alex again, who says she joined the space program with him as his co-pilot, which, oddly enough, he now remembers. Zan goes to see Tuzok and asks if, if she gives Talene what she wants, will she use it to hurt people? He says that she most certainly will, but she may also use it to free a planet from tyranny. Dargo and Aaron are about to go down to the planetoid, but Aaron drops her pulse rifle and it smashes. And Dargo sees Jothi and Peacekeepers on board, while Rigel seems to shrink. Zan agrees to unity with Talene, who says she only wants a small seed to learn to control herself. They join, but instead Talene causes Zan pain, saying that Zan achieved what Zan achieved will take her too long to master on her own, so she rips all of it out of Zan's mind. They break, and Zan's eyes are now red with madness. Crichton goes to her and says, and she says that her dark impulses are released. Talene has ripped her ability to control them. Zan then gets violent with Crichton and says she doesn't have the strength to start over again. Crichton goes looking for Talene, but again finds Alex, who says that she should forget about Zan, that Zan made her own choice. Pilot calls over the comm and says that everyone on Moya is acting strangely. Crichton goes to Talene, who says that she will save over a billion Delvian lives in fear on her homeworld. Crichton tells her to put right what she did with Zan, but she tells Lorana when he's gone, to destroy his mind. Lorana wants to let them go, but Talene says she didn't get everything she needed from Zan. So again, Alex corners Crichton, who asks when she will become more, and asks him when she will become more important to him than Zan. Alex is now wearing the engagement ring, and he has a flash of his proposal to her, and then when she questions him, their marriage. She tells him to honor his vows or choose Zan over her. Meanwhile, Talene goes to Tuzak, who turns out to be her father, where it's revealed that he brought the Delvians here to accelerate their learning and create a new class of Paui. Tuzok says that she should learn from his error that she's going too fast. He says that what she does is worse than the insanity she's trying to stave off. She then incapacitates him. Crichton asks Zan to go back to Moya, but she says she'll join with Talene one more time. Crichton recognizes that she's planning to kill her, and Zan says that he was always the clever one on Moya. Alex asks Crichton why Zan is so important to him and says Zan doesn't like her or even know her. 
Alex says that she has a forced memory created to distract him and morphs into Lorana. She says she now shares his feelings for Zan and all the crew now that she's been in his mind and says that her people have fallen off the path. In his mind, he showed her that she was wrong and he can show that to Zan. Hosko is now speaking with Dargo and Aaron and Rigel, telling them to, f- to stay focused, but they must not invade the planet. It has to give the Delvians time to do it their way. Meanwhile, Lorana tells Talene that she's wrong and that Crichton and Zan are attempting to leave. So Talene says she'll stop them. Crichton goes to Zan and says that he wants to join with her in unity. And he was told that she could protect him from injury. Zan agrees and they join, but Zan tells him not to absorb any of her rage. And while joined, Crichton shows her his view of Zan, telling her to see what he sees and to try to be herself again. They break suddenly and Crichton tells her to fight the madness. After a few moments, she manages to, and he holds her as she thanks him. We then see Crichton chopping down the Delvian spirit tree and angry because he can't remember what happened in Unity. Zan tells him that the details of another's mind fade after the Unity, but the essence of the bonding remains. Talene runs in and says that she'll destroy Crichton's mind, but Zan blocks her. She was also gifted with something for their Unity, and she is now 10th level, able to protect others. She tells Talene that it's over, and with her father gone, she is needed to tend his orchard. Zan and Crichton go, but she leaves the vestments behind, saying she's no longer worthy of them. She says that one day she can reclaim them, but not today. Crichton says it's a shame to waste all those years of training, but she says they were hardly wasted. They were the best cycles of her life. A couple pieces of trivia from this episode. Uh, this was Virginia Hayes' favorite episode. She stated, The whole episode was very important to me, and I learned a great deal. Andrew Prowse directed that episode, and I loved every second of it. He really pushed my performance, and I think that since then, there's been a great strength in Zan that was born in that particular story. Talking about receiving the script, she continued, I was in heaven, but when we started shooting, I also felt like I was in some kind of strange bowling alley in the sky. David Kemper said that while when the makeup people realized that they had to sit every one of those actors in a chair for three and a half hours a morning, they went crazy. He went on to point out that there's never been another episode where there's more than one blue person. And uh, eight eight makeup artists were needed to create all the Delvians seen in this episode. So, uh, any thoughts on this one, Eric? Yeah, and also apparently only Zan was bald. Like, all the rest of them had hair. So, I guess they didn't want to go that far with the makeup either. (laughs) Well, you know, when you have that much blue, you want to kind of point out uh, or be able to identify your main one, right? I mean... Yeah, and, and like, you know, everyone's different, right? Some people have hair, some people don't, some people are blue, some people are darker blue, whatever. Yeah, but yeah. But yeah, I, I thought was, this, this one was better than the last episode. You know, this definitely had lots of great backstory on, on Zan and Delvians in, Delvians in general. Uh, you know, we kind of really learned more about possibly how Zan got to where she is now and got to learn more about, obviously, what happened to her homeworld, which is pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, this, this definitely was one of the biggest info dumps I think we've gotten on... Delvians in general and Zan in particular, right? I mean, we've gotten some references to her anarchist days and things like that, but this was the big one, I think, of, of finding out more about her people, at least the initial one. And I guess before we get into all the good stuff that we liked, I just have like like kind of two nitpicks, and then I can just you know forget about them and move on with my life. Uh, but it's, it seems kind of weird that obviously all the crew and even Moya had these dreams, except Aaron. She didn't really admit to anything. But uh, so was Talene and the priests on the planet sending out these psychic dreams every day and hoping that Zan would finally receive it. It just seemed kind of odd that, you know, she was looking for Zan specifically. She said that. 
So were they just doing this every day and hoping that suddenly she would just find their way to them? Or was it just this one time and they were so powerful that they knew they could do it? You know, I mean, it, there's a little bit of their, I'm, I'm putting air quotes around power that we don't understand, right? I mean, she evidently has some kind of great ability to mess with memories. And evidently there's not a whole lot of distance limitation to how that works. Yeah, because if they're far enough away that Moya had to starburst for a long time to get there, that... And again, we don't know how starbursts work and how far they go, but it sounds like it was really far away that they able to send out this psychic invitation or whatever, right? So, yeah, I guess was, only... it wasn't terribly focused because uh, it hit the whole crew, right? I mean, she didn't just hit um, Zan, but she hit every one of them with something. And I say she, right? We don't know how many of them it took, but it affected the whole crew either way. Yeah, so I kind of wonder, like, did like everybody in like a you know several light year radius suddenly have these dreams, right? <laughs> or was it just targeted towards you know where where Zan was, right? And it's kind of just bubbled out to you know people around there. But there's a lot of confused people in that sector of the galaxy, that's for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and my only other slight annoying thing is, of, of course, they also mentioned that they have no idea where they are either in the uncharted territories. You know, these Delvians, they their ship crashed or whatever, and they don't know, don't know where they are. So okay, so. If they would have succeeded in getting Zan's control and getting rid of their madness, then what? I guess try to figure out where Delvia is and how to get back home? <laughs> I guess. Well, obviously that's the goal, right? It's that once she had the ability, she was going to go save billions of people. So, yeah, they, they don't really think too far. I guess she could just mind control somebody else who may have star charts. I, I'm not really sure how they think they're going to do it. But if that, with that kind of mind control power, I don't see whether it's a limitation. They just don't say it, which is odd. Yeah, I mean, they only talk about, and you know, not that we have to have everything laid out in detail of how all the stuff works. That's the fun of evolving episodes, and writers can write whatever they want, and as long as they don't go crazy and make things way out of normal. But yeah, so we have no idea what the Delvian psychic abilities are. Do, do, does every Delvian have this? Are there billions of them with psychic powers, and they have to train, or they just don't use them, or whatever? So it's fun to speculate and have fun. and. Uh, there were also a couple of funny lines in the beginning. I mean, this is a pretty serious episode, right? But there were at least a couple of funny things before they get to the planet, which I thought was kind of funny. I, I kind of wrote them down. Like back on the ship, uh, Dargo says, you know, something Crichton said is disturbing me. And Rigel says, finally, I've been saying that since he arrived. <laughs> yeah. Not a lot of Rigel, but he did get a couple good lines in. Yeah. Like it, then later he's like, when Moya's starbursting for a while, which may be related to her trying to find the pregnant Leviathan, she thinks, or maybe it's just a side effect of being pregnant that you know, starbursts aren't working quite right. John's like, hey, this is a little long for a starburst, don't you think? And Rigel says, you know, hail Prince of the Obvious. Yeah. I'd say we get too little of Rigel in this episode, but he was he thought he would shrunk. So I guess there was too little of him in this episode. <laughs> yeah, right. I see what you did there. Yeah. So. But yeah, that's the other thing. It's kind of weird. that like, I guess each of the crew, I guess... At the end, when they're messing with their minds to keep them distracted and away from coming down to the planet, yeah, I guess their worst fears come out. I mean, you know, Aaron, you know, her, 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 her rifle breaks, which I guess is like a worst thing to have if you're a soldier, you know, like your, your weapon you can't use. She forgets how to do stuff. D Dargo's think his son's being kidnapped by peacekeepers on board Moya, so he's charging around trying to find them and, you know, lock down the ship, right, to keep them from leaving. And for some reason, Rigel's greatest fear is he keeps shrinking? Or maybe that's I... like he's... Like his power or his importance is shrinking. Like he's no, he's no longer um, Dominar. He's just a regular guy and he doesn't have influence or power or prestige anymore, I guess. I don't know. So so I have a couple of headcanons for these. One is that for Rigel, it's because he's the smallest one already. That, you know, to be even smaller means he's less important to the crew. Uh, again, I'm, uh, 
that was my headcanon for that. And Aaron's, of course, being the, the competent soldier is, you know, her greatest fear is to be incompetent, right? That, that she can't, she can't do anything right. She's not, not competent with her equipment. She's not competent with, you know, make, mess with any systems. So uh, I think a lot of it comes down to being useful and useless. Yeah. And I guess it's also enough to have happen to them that, you know, when she thinks, you know, my, my rifle's broken, it's there on the ground. Jarber's like, what are you talking about? It's right there. And she's like, no, it's broken. And then, then he's off running around looking for Jothi and the peacekeepers. And Aaron's like, there's nobody here. You know, so it's like, they, they don't quite put it together that they're being messed with, but they know each other is crazy. <laughs> yes, yeah, because she actually holds up the rifle, but to her, she's holding up just a piece of it, saying she's not trained with just that piece. And he's like, you're holding the rifle. So... Yeah, so and, and you know it's it's outlines the crew, so it, it does does what it's supposed to do. It's just kind of odd that each one knows that they're wrong, but they don't put it together that they're being messed with. Which okay, yeah, yeah, and I think this you know we'll probably get this a little bit later, but I think it's kind of funny that this is another, and I guess most of these episodes are Crichton centric, but it's it's always interesting to me the pairings because the last episode was Crichton Aaron, and everybody else got sidelined, and this episode was Crichton Zan. And everybody else is sidelined. So I think that seems to be the theme is that we're just kind of rotating through character infos on some of these other things. Yeah, it's like you know, Crichton's definitely the main character. You know, I guess he's he's our you know, he's the audience equivalent or the whatever whatever you call it. You know, so we you know cause we we can project ourselves into him because he's you know from Earth. He's an Earthling like us from our time. If you're watching it back in '99, you know, so we, we can relate more to him than anybody else. So he's definitely the audience viewpoint, and I guess does what any good human would do. You know, hang out and you know try to encourage his friends and help them out when they're in trouble and catch squid cu- cucumbers yeah <laughs> but yeah i guess it's kind of funny how aaron's just like you know whatever it's just food and he's like isn't this amazing look it's like a plant fish thing aren't you amazed and so i don't know if that's like her peacekeeper upbringing where it's just like you know do your job do your duty do your thing don't question don't care don't don't think basically i guess it's just you know just do your just stay in your lane know, know your place you know don't don't be phased by anything yeah, definitely a, a cultural uh, thing, stoic soldier approach that Crichton, as the, quote, explorer and scientist, is um, you know more interested in, and excited about the things he sees, or at least yeah. is willing to show it. And especially here, because you know, he's somewhere else that no one's ever been from Earth, so everything's brand new to him. So every day is fun and interesting and exciting, whereas probably most people, it's like, yeah, another planet, another people, another thing. Okay, yeah, great. <laughs> But yeah, so speaking of like the Crichton and Aaron, uh, Zan-centric episode here, we do learn some a couple of little nuggets about John, that he was apparently, right before he went to, I was, was going to say NASA, it's the IASA, that he was going to be engaged, or he was getting ready to propose to his girlfriend, uh, but then she was going you know, across country, and then I guess that wouldn't have, long distance wouldn't have worked, and now it's really long distance, so that really, really wouldn't have worked, relationship, but kind of interesting. Yeah, it would have definitely changed who he was leaving voice recordings for. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Forget DJ, my friend. Uh, how about my wife or my future you know, girlfriend? Whatever. Yeah. Although that does make the uh, mind control false memories even more you know, rough on him. Because it makes you question how, you know, how much did he get back at the end? Because they totally messed up his, his memories of that relationship. Yeah, you wonder, like, I guess when... Talene made him think he was drowning as a kid, which may have been a real memory, and she brought it forward. Maybe she, she, she created it, whatever, but, and Zan said, you know, put it back the way it was. So you wonder if at the end of this, yeah, did everybody kind of get their memories reordered back the way they should be, or they still know that what happened happened, and 
yeah, will there be any effects later from that? Who knows? And then I guess, you know, the big, obviously the big focus of this episode was Zan, which that's why it was her favorite episode too, the actress. So we get the backstory on her planet that I guess the, I guess Batal, she said he's like a spiritual counselor. So I don't know if that was like their leader. Didn't really say it, but, or at least some kind of higher up in the Delvian priestly chain or whatever. Yeah, I, I definitely slaughtered the pronunciation of that, but it definitely yeah. seems that there's there's multiple levels of uh, priesthood, uh, and because you mentioned he's hitting you know, tenth now, and uh, evidently he was probably top of the list as far as you know the abilities that he had at the time. Yeah, so apparently like they must have some kind of term limit or something that they're elected or whatever they serve a period of time. It sounds like they didn't want to step down, and for some reason invited the peacekeepers over to take over security for their planet. And apparently that either went according to their plan or the peacekeeper's plan then of rounding up dissidents who didn't like peacekeeper rule and shoving them to asteroid like concentration camps or something. And that apparently set Zan off and through the unity that we did a couple times times this episode, she kills him. And that may have set off her madness that she talked about. It didn't really say, but I can kind of headcanon that that might be some of the anarchy that she was imprisoned for by the peacekeepers probably. Yeah, and I, know, I think in another episode we got how long Dargo was in prison. Did we get how? Do we know how long she was in prison? Because she mentions seventeen years of darkness. So I'm guessing that that if that set off her anarchy, then we've got maybe some counter peacekeeper fighting that she did, you know, resisting their rule before she was captured. But you know, overall, seventeen years before she reached whatever level of calm that she has now, control. Yeah, it could be. It generally say so. There's definitely a room for. You know, more exploration of that that story, which I hope that they will, because it sounds interesting. What 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 they're what this group of priests are trying to do is the right idea, I guess. You know, you want to learn, or you know, you, you want to be able to go back home and help your people throw off the peacekeeper rule, you know, get your people back out of these camps and get on with their life, which might be a whole other set of wars and things and whatever. But that's that's a goal, right? You know, your your people are under authority that you don't want, so you want to get rid of them. And so you know, it's an honorable thing they're trying to do. They're just kind of going about it really the wrong way. Yeah, and, and you don't get a whole lot of information about what that even means other than the, they went there to do it faster. Somehow the, the roots factor into this and the, the orchard that the guy's tending. And if they push too hard, they go mad. That's that's kind of my three things I've picked up from this episode as far as the religion goes, but yeah, and there's ten levels, or at least ten levels. Yeah, I mean, you know, as we always link things to other sci-fi franchises, you know, this is kind of like Star Wars. This is like the Force, right? You know, you have like the spiritual powers, psychic powers, you know, the physical powers. So you kind of think like, yeah, there's like as they try to achieve purity, the light side, you know, they're seduced by the dark side. So they they kind of, if they're not careful, they can go mad, like. Um, what's his name, Tavek or Tazek, whatever his name was, Talene's father, who you know, just flat out says, yeah, I'm insane, I'm crazy. And Frighten's like, yep, yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> and, <laughs> and then, obviously, either she's Talene's going insane or she's go, she's losing control. She's not red-eyed crazy, at least not in the beginning, and tries to get that control out of Zan. And when she can't learn it, she just tries to, like again, like her father said, you know, take an easy way out. She's just trying to just kill Zan, absorb it all for herself, I guess also learn how to kill people too via unity, which is, you know, I guess what Zan did to her, her lover. So yeah, she's trying to get everything, you know, she wants it all now. She can't wait. She can't have patience and evolve it naturally. She just wants everything right now so they can get on with their glorious plan of freeing Delvia. Which sounds like a good thing when you say it, but means versus the justification, right? 
yeah, the old age old question right to the end, just justify the means, right? So is it worth sacrificing Zan and Moya's crew to free a billion people? To them, or to her at least, yes. Later, as I guess the other Delphians are going through the crew's memories, they kind of think the other way that no, you know, we kind of sympathize or we, I don't say like, but we, yeah, we, we, we feel bad about what we're doing to the crew. We're not going to do that anymore, you know, whether you want to or not, you know, we're, we're out, we're going to give them the memories back, you know, sorry, you know, she wants to kill you guys, you know, we're out of this, we're not going to do anything, you know. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> Meanwhile, Crichton takes an axe to their tree, so, you know. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I guess they have, you know, those little, almost like, it looks like dead trees, really, but yeah, they have the little garden out there that they can, I guess, rebuild their temple with. But yeah, it's a good, I guess, reminder that the quick way is not always the best way, right? Right. Which may help John with some of his, you know, research, because they all seem to be in a hurry to get home. <laughs> yeah, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll just desert people when they can't find them for five seconds. They'll, you know, they want the shortcuts. They want, yeah. So, which is, hey, that's like, that's what we are, right? You know, we, we can't wait you know, 30 minutes to cook a pizza. We want it like in five seconds in the microwave, right? So we can't wait that long anymore. So yeah, I I, I can relate to what they're going through. That's why um, we have takeout. That's right. <laughs> that's why I have delivery. Um, no. I thought the effects were pretty cool. Like when they did the, when they did the Unity cuts, they did a couple of those where it's like, they had like kind of like back to back, like they, they merge the two heads together, like back to back kind of thing. I thought it was kind of cool. Yeah, and the, the stained glass scene falling away behind them in the lights. I really liked how that kind of made you feel like they were Again, uh, limited effects budget, but that seemed to be pretty well done. Yeah, like the acting together when they're you know in 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 their minds with each other, and Crichton's like, "This is amazing! It's fantastic!" And Sans like, "Okay, just calm down, you know, <laughs> focus." Yeah, you know. but yeah, I mean, at least this time, uh, Crichton seems to get that when Zan loses control, it's not just as simple as just you know flipping a switch and getting it back again. Because however, like probably five, six episodes ago, when Zan was forcing pain on people and stuff, like when they're fighting against Maldus, the, you know, the evil Q-like alien that you know, we talked about, you know, Craig's just like, oh, okay, well, thanks. You know, I'm sure it really took a lot out of you, but yeah, you, know, you can just, you know, click your heels together and, you know, poof, you're fine, right? And she's like, no, it's not that simple. So at least now he's kind of got a broader perspective now that, yeah, this is not just a light, easy thing that she did. You know, this is hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to take a lot for her to gain regain control again but well and he didn't just find out about it right it wasn't like he just got told about it he actually got the memory so you know that that makes it even more personal because he actually witnessed it yeah i mean now he really understands now he's you know he's basically either he experienced it like zan or at least he's you know an eyewitness so to speak of what happened so now yeah definitely he's he's got a better idea of what she's going through and he, he still even selflessly risked his own life to help her get her control back right so that was nice Yes. Uh, any any final thoughts on these two episodes? Um, like we said, you know, kind of a mixed, not you know, bad and good, but it was like kind of good. And I think this was pretty great. I liked it. I think it's up, up there as one of the favorite ones of the series. Not the top of the one, but at least it was definitely up in the top half of the good episodes so far this season. Yeah, I, I think the character usage was a little underwhelming as far as the crew, but the amount of information we got on Zan more than made up for it. Yeah, I guess you can have an episode where you learn, you know, lots of meaty details about every single crew member, you know, so at least they can focus on one character with like another character helping and evolving or also learning. But yeah, it's a good episode to focus on one character, get more of their backstory, kind of peel back more layers of the onion of this side of the universe and see how things work. And now Zan's, uh, what, the 10th level Pau, so whatever that means. Yeah, except for she's no longer practicing, so I don't know what that'll mean for her character going forward either. 
Yeah, I mean, it's not like she's given away her abilities and she's not going to use them anymore, probably. So it's just she's not going to, I don't know, think or, you know, maybe act more act more priestly. Maybe she's going to act more, I don't say civilian, but, you know, <laughs> like more. Yeah. Uh, and I don't say normal either, but, you know, act differently now. Maybe she's going to be like a normal Delvian. I don't know. Who knows? Whatever that is, since we don't have any way to know what a normal Delvian does, right? So Yeah, we have no context other than, like, what, the three or four main ones we meet this episode and her. So yeah, five people does not constitute a whole, what, what the whole race of people thinks and does and believes. Right. So, but that's sci-fi. That's how it works. So that's how it works. Yeah. One person speaks for their entire planet. That's how it works. Right. All right. Anything else on your end you want to mention or. No, no, I think, I think we've uh, covered everything. I, I did think, like you said, that the first one was not my favorite, but I definitely enjoyed this episode with Zan. So I'm looking forward to what comes next. Yep, and speaking of which, so next time is Season 1, Episode 13, The Flax, whatever that means, and Season 1, Episode 14, Jeremiah Crichton. And once again, that's the Wikipedia order, which I think is the last time this season that they mix up episodes, but we'll I'll tell you next time when I do the analysis of the two lists. So use, that, use the Wikipedia order, not the Amazon Prime order. And I have no guesses at all for what these story titles mean as to what they might contain. I look forward to being totally surprised about what these might be. As usual. <laughs> yeah. The, the only thing that popped in my head was Jeremiah Crichton when, was it that, that Three Dog Night songs that joined the world? Like, you know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog. Is that the opening uh, line? So Yeah. My brain went Jeremiah Johnson, which was the, the you know, survival Western type frontier movie. Oh. So Okay. So which, means about... I'm, which means I'm totally wrong. It's either a bullfrog yeah. or... or... <laughs> Yeah. Well, somehow I don't think Crichton's gonna become a bullfrog, but you know that. <laughs> hey, don't, I'm gonna laugh if that's what happens. But hey, we had, we had Aaron become a pilot creature or race. So hey, who knows? Maybe some more DNA uh, fun. Uh, no, probably not. But <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. That'd be, you know, it's, it's like the, the the Thor frog combo from Marvel Comics. Throg. Throg. You know, yes. Yeah. It's, you know, frog Crichton. No, 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 just kidding. All right. So that's your homework. For, yeah. Right. <laughs> So that's our homework for next time, and we'll see you then. Goodbye.